Good morning. Thank you for being here. We're grateful that you've come. I know that uh, it's been said a number of times. Uh, Zach welcomed you quite thoroughly, uh, but I want to add to it if I could, could echo and jump on top. We are grateful and we hope that you feel welcomed. We've got some formal ways. We went through those, but just a reminder again, if there are informal ways, because we can't nail it perfectly, please feel free to tap someone on the shoulder or to ask the person around you or just come up after a service and say, hey, I have a question about something. I know there's the form thingy in the connect table, but also, could I talk to you? Please do that. If we haven't got a chance to meet, my name is Lance, and along with Zach and Brian, I serve as one of the pastors here, which is an honor and a privilege. And over the next number of moments, we're going to look at the Bible together. So if you have one, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, there's a black hardcover one in front of you. Just church-sanctioned stealing. You can take that home if you need one. Go for it. But if you've got a screen or somewhere to look, most of the verses will also be on the screen behind me. We're going to look at Romans chapter 9 together. Now here's my guess. My guess is when I said, let's turn to Romans chapter 9, there were a, a variety of little ripples throughout this room. Some of you, it meant nothing. You thought, okay, Romans, I've heard of that. Nine is a number, in fact. So that indicates to me that this chapter, in fact, or this book at least has nine chapters. So let's do that and go for it. But uh, my guess is, is that some of the rest of you um, salivated. If I could say it as some of you are rabid about these things. You just think to yourself, yes, we're finally there. And uh, you're sharpening your debate skills, you love a good mystery, and you can't wait to dive in. Maybe some of the rest of you, there's trepidation. You think, man, I don't know where this is going to go. And I just want to acknowledge all of these thoughts and feelings right up front. And what we're going to find out is is that we are going to need to engage our minds. We really will. You're going to have to think there's some concepts, some words, some directions that Romans 9 goes, building on the end of Romans chapter 8 where Paul's going to talk about what God knows, a.k.a. everything, when he knew it, before the foundation of the world, how he was involved in our lives, what it meant for him to love us in a foreordained kind of a way. There's words like election and predestination, and it is mind-blowing stuff, especially when you consider the agency that human beings have. How can God both know everything and have set everything in motion, and at the same time, I'm responsible for what I do? How does this all work? We're going to have to open our minds. And I believe that there is reason for discourse. There is going to be some healthy dialogues. I hope that coming out of this out of the weeks to come, that there are living room moments throughout the week where you are just chopping it up with one another in love, not too rabid, but you're engaging these things in wonder and you're saying, let's try to understand together. My guess is that for some of you, you're going to be challenged in particular ways. Others, you're going to be perhaps chastened in particular ways. And so I am saying right off the bat, we're going to have to open our minds. Now here's where I insert the big conjunction, the big but. What we're going to see and what I want you to notice as we start Romans 9, especially those of us who extremely are animated by these things. Oh, yes, let's talk about election and predestination. Let's talk about free will and let's talk about our responsibility and agency. Before we nerd out with our minds, which will be necessary, what I want us to look for and to realize that what is most required, beginning in Romans 9, 
is not just to open our minds, but to open our hearts. And what we're going to see is that Paul does not jump into a discussion. There's really three chapters here, 9, 10, and 11, about Israel, which is to date, I believe, the oddest group of people that have ever walked in the face of the earth for a lot of different reasons. And I don't mean odd as an insult, but there is a lot to figure out here, especially from Paul's point of view, who was a Jew, before he engages these chapters, he does not do so from a place of cold, calculating brain energy. But instead, he jumps in with heart-open, full-throttled love, affection for their good. And so I'm going to say at the outset that this lesson needs to be learned well by us because it's going to be tempting to make critiques later on to say this seems heartless, this kind of thing seems like it doesn't love people, how could, what if, how do these things function, and to remember that they are not antithetical to loving people. Thinking theologically and doctrinally is not antithetical to loving people unless you have shortcutted the opening of your heart. And this is going to apply to a lot of different areas of life. If you jump in policy first, if you jump in advice first, if you jump in correction first, you likely will not be well received and you are probably doing harm to your own soul. However, it's amazing what can be accomplished when someone is loved well first, when heart is engaged first, when you are convinced from your own soul and they are convinced or some other group are convinced or some idea well, an idea can't be convinced, but you get the point. Let me run with my rhetoric for a minute. So the idea would be what can be accomplished with heart first, then engaging mind, I think, will be amazing to us. So let's read first five verses of Romans 9. I kind of uh, spoiled it for you. I mean, it's going to be pretty obvious where we're going, but I want to think about Paul's engaged heart, and then we're going to try to figure out how to look at this text. First five verses of Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I wonder if you wouldn't take a moment and pray with me that we have understanding and a proper posture with what we just read. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a day like this. Thank you for waking us to mercies, life, and breath, and relationships, and provision, hopes for the work that you've provided our hands to do, the joys that we experience. I pray that we would not be dull or asleep to these things. Stir gratitude in us where there has been things taken for granted. Help us to see the others around us, the gift that they are. I pray that we would 
do all that we do this very day to your glory. We would see it as from your hand and respond properly. God, I ask now, especially as we have read parts of this chapter of Scripture, that you would give us eyes to see. We're not smart enough. We're not engaged enough. We'll be distracted even in these moments. We'll be unable to fully focus. And so we ask that you would help us. Spirit of God, please move in our midst and give us an attentiveness, an openness, a stirring of heart. I pray, God, that we could find clarity together. I pray for those who are distracted by hurts, cynicism, suffering, pain. We pray, God, for comfort. I ask, God, for the hardness of our hearts, those of us who need to be corrected, we pray that you would soften us. And in all of these things, God, we want to, to find truth, to love one another well, to love you fully, and to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So Paul has opened his heart. That's the first answer to a question that may have been stirring behind the reader all the way up through. Now, you know that Romans chapter 8 was one hit after the other. It is, in many ways, the greatest hits album of the Apostle Paul. I used to, when I was a kid, listen to a James Taylor greatest hits album. This is like that kind of album for Romans chapter 8. And I am totally unashamed if you think that I am the lamest kid of all time. Yes, in my teens, I rocked out to a James Taylor greatest hits album because he's amazing. And Romans 8, in many ways, was a greatest hits album. It was a summary. It was a, a reveling in all that we've been given in Christ. And we saw that. I think that culminates in last week with this idea that we have no condemnation, that no one can stand against. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But there may have been a question in the background. There may have been a question behind the reader at a certain point, something like this. Well, what about Israel? What about the people who have been God's people forever? Why is it that a majority or a number of them seem to have rejected this or are in hardness of heart not rejoicing with all that you're telling us that could be rejoiced in? What about them? That could have been the question that was there. And I believe that it's been on Paul's heart and mind too, which is why he immediately goes in Romans chapter 9 and brings them up. Maybe we could say it like this, what do we do with the lost? What do we do with the wayward? What do we do with those with whom we disagree? What about those who seem to be hardened to things that we believe are the most life-giving? What do we do with that? And what Paul has given us is a little bit of a roadmap, I think, a way for us to approach these next number of chapters in order to be oriented and postured the right way. The first thing that he says is, he does not pull any punches, the reality of rejection is evident here. The reality of rejection, and we're going to have to deal with that. Sometimes things really are just starkly wrong. It doesn't help to sugarcoat it, so we're going to talk about the reality of rejection, 
Then I want to consider and think about the way that Israel had been given this amazing honor of being God's people. They had an inheritance of all these wonderful things, and yet it wasn't delivering them where they thought it would deliver them. Maybe I could call it the danger of rote religiosity. That's the idea here. That's what he says. There was a danger for them of rote religiosity. And then finally, what I want us to consider together is a right response. A right response, and I'm going to tell you what I mean by that as we go through the morning. You ever been tempted to, to lie to someone because the truth hurts too much? Have you ever found yourself sugarcoating something because you knew that the reality of the situation was too difficult not only for the other person to handle, but for you? I think many times when faced with stark realities, we are tempted to pull back and to pretend in a certain way, to live as though things weren't the way they really are. And in that, I'm grateful for the courage of the Apostle Paul. I'm grateful for his example in a situation like that because according to him and in his heart and his mind, he is pained greatly by a, the reality of something. And it's the reality of the fact that what he calls his brothers, his kinsmen, his people, that Israel has been cut off and that they have rejected the message of the gospel given to them by God. My guess is that it would have been a very difficult thing for him to admit. That he maybe would have been tempted to say something like, well, it's not that bad, or they're going to get a, a roundabout separate way. They'll have an elite VIP elevator, like they have a special pass. But Paul's committed to saying, no, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. That is it. And if Christ is rejected, you don't get a separate workaround. He could have been tempted to say that maybe because they're VIP, that everything is okay. We were in Chicago last summer, and I bought one of these city pass things, and I didn't realize it, but to a couple of the places that we were going, because we had city pass, we were VIP status. I brought the kids to the top of the Sears Tower. I know it's changed names. I don't. I won't change names. It's like one of my old man stubborn things. It's just always the Sears Tower to me. Huge line. Imagine a huge line like probably an hour-long line going everywhere. And I walk up with the kids, and we have this little city pass thing, and as soon as I mark it, the people just take us an entirely different way. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize. VIP, come over here. And we got to go around the whole line. Have you ever felt the heat of people's eyes when you're doing that? (laughs) I'm pretty sure we were singed. We were burned. We were physically burned by the hatred from these people. We got to go around an entirely different line. We went to a, a different exit. They held everybody off. They're like, I'm sorry, this is a separate a VIP elevator run just for these people in the separate line. And we got to go up. And then we get to the top, and there's these boxes that you can stand out over the city. It's just pure glass, and you stand on glass, and you look straight down all these stories. And again, an insane line, like crazy levels of people waiting everywhere. Not us. V-I- VIP. Totally separate gate, Right? Separate gate, because we were special, we were unique, and again we were burned to the core by the eyes of, of loathing people. We're waiting in these lines, but we go around. 
Point here being that maybe Paul could have imagined or said, here's the thing, I know what I said about Jesus and I know the reality of his incarnation and his perfect life and his sacrificial death means that only through Christ is life found. But, you know, Israel, they're VIP. So maybe God opened a a separate gate, like a little bit of a different sort of thing to go through. You see, that might have eased his conscience. It might have, in some ways, on the outside, looking in, seemed to solve the problem. But because of his commitment, both to Christ and to the truth, he cannot go there. And so he says, what is the logical thing that follows? If all must come through Christ, then so must Israel. Here's what he said about them in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So his description of Israel is the reality of their rejection. Their rejection of Christ, and so therefore, their standing outside of the blessing, inheritance, and life of God. Now that is a very, very hard reality. If or because there are those who will be lost, Because sin is real and it matters and there's a standard in the world and the consequences are everywhere, because those things are real, we must face the stark reality that there will be those who are lost. And Paul is doing that at the deepest level of his soul with those who are nearest to him and dearest to him. It's his own family. But rather than pulling back or making exceptions or having some kind of elite special VIP gate for these people, he faces the hard reality of those he believes to be and sees to be as lost. And I want us to note this because later in Romans 9, and maybe you're a kind of person who talks through this and, and you are certain which you should be, that you have life in Christ, and you're certain that when Jesus said that only those who come to him get to the Father, only those who the Father draws come to him, if you are certain of these things that only life can be found in Christ, then the question becomes, how can you talk about those who are outside of Christ without your heart breaking? And for many people inside Christianity and outside, when they hear someone in a very sort of poindextery kind of way talking about the mechanics of salvation and and election and predestination, and if they do so with a cold heart that makes it sound like they almost delight in the damnation of others, that is not going to honor God, and it certainly isn't going to be winsome in convincing anyone of the reality of their situation. Does this make sense? Am I the only person who's been tempted to this? That sometimes I can abstract theology to the point where it makes it sound like the things I'm saying are not connected to real life or real human beings. 
Christians make massive claims. We say there is one way to God and that this is a life and death proposition for all of eternity, and it doesn't do any good to pretend that that's not an unbelievable statement. And when those who doubt or those who reject or those who say, uh, we must have engaged hearts first to realize the totality of what we're saying. And so, Paul is courageous with the reality of their rejection, but he is also engaging his heart toward them. He moves on, and he wants to give something that I believe makes the pain even deeper for him. Here's the reality, is that not only is Israel lost and has rejected Christ, and he is pained over this, he's engaged with them because he loves them and he wants their best, But then he gives all the more reason that this is a deep kind of pain, and that is is that Israel was in the pole position. I don't know if you know this, but it seems like, at least among my friends, racing of many kinds is making a comeback. It's like if you you would have liked NASCAR, but you think it's a little redneck, now you're into F1 racing or something. Am I wrong about this? I don't know if you have some friends who are into this. It's like uh, F1 racing is now people who, who like cars and racing and loud noises and going around a track endlessly but they maybe drink tea. You know, I mean, that's kind of the, that's what it feels like to me. Or they, they like to tell someone they found it on an obscure European channel or something. So racing is all the rage. And the idea here is that Paul's trying to give this, this idea that in all of the pre-race stuff, all of the qualifications, that Israel had the pole position that they were blessed, that they had inherited an unbelievable place from from which they could have received Christ. He goes through this entire list of all that they had, and it makes their rejection and their status currently all the more difficult to understand. And this is a good warning for us as we go through this. Perhaps the warning is this that it is possible to believe not in God or not in Christ, but to believe in the rote machinations of a religion that you've inherited. And that if I just go through the motions this way, and this is not just for those in more high church liturgical traditions, it's not for Protestants just to say, oh yeah, yeah, I know, other kinds of Christians, they just really get into the rote stuff. No, Baptists can just as much. All of us can, if we do not pay attention, begin to believe that we have inherited some standing that will deliver us all the way home simply by going through the motions. And what Paul wants to point out is that, look, Israel had pole position. Look at all the stuff they had, and they still, as a matter of heart, had rejected Christ and found themselves in a hardened place. He goes through what eight benefits. Eight benefits that they had. They had all the reason in the world to, and this is an in quotes thing, to succeed spiritually. He goes through these eight benefits. Pole position. They had what he calls the adoption. The adoption here, likely referring to the idea that in order to bring about the Christ, God had set Israel apart and said, you're going to be my people. They were especially, they experienced some of the fruits of, of being a child of God before The reality of Christ opened it to all. So through Abraham, calling him and saying that I will be your God, you'll be my people, they were set apart. There's no other way to read the history. They were set apart. 
He says, in addition to that, it wasn't just a legal document sort of thing. They had the very presence of God. He calls it the glory. I think this indicates a number of ways. It's a, a fitting way for him to describe it, not just the glory. And then he says the covenants and the giving of the law. But you can imagine moments where there was the glory of God specifically and in power, like with Mount Sinai, with Moses. But other realities, that as Israel moved around the desert, God promised his presence with them and he would actually follow them around as a cloud and a glimmering light. God's glory had come near to them in a way that no one else had experienced. So they were God's people. He was their God. And he walked with them. He stayed with them. His presence went with them. Then more than that, Paul says God made covenants with them. Binding, promising covenants where God was both the maker of the covenant and the guarantee of the covenant itself. There's a covenant with Abraham, which we mentioned earlier, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David to have a, a king on the throne. God went out of his way to promise redemption and presence and benefit. They had the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. There was no other people on the earth that God saw fit to give basic rules of morality and life, standards of his law given to them. They had the actual commandments. So the giving of the law, they were in pole position. They had what he calls the worship. We mean by the worship is not only the temple, the place where God dwelt, but the entire system of sacrifice. God had laid out for them, here's how you come to me. This is what it would look like. God was their worship leader, set up a system of priests. All of this given to them alone. The promises. The idea here is that God would send prophets and those who would speak his truth consistently down through the ages. People reminding them and drawing them back to God. Like a wonderful, wonderful, I mean this is a downplaying of the, of the prophets, God help me, have mercy. But like a, a wonderful life coach, right? When you're living wayward or something, someone just calls you up and says, hey, I just want to remind you that your pursuit of those things is not healthy for you and you need to turn around and stop. Just imagine having someone built in that is consistently pursuing you to tell you these things. That's what the promises are. The prophets consistently coming down and God just reminding them again, hey, remember when I told you about doing this kind of stuff? You're going to die. Please stop. And over and over again, God relentlessly calls them back. They have the patriarchs. God's personal wrestling, his personal presence with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally, to top it all off, Paul says, here is the craziest part. That it was through the line of Israel, through the line of David, that Jesus himself, the Messiah man, the incarnate one, was born. And they missed it. They missed it. Despite every possible religious privilege, Israel missed it. So here's the question. Is it possible to receive blessing after blessing after blessing and be ungrateful? Yes. Is it possible to see and to experience and to even feel the faith of people around your ancestors, but not by osmosis receive that? Is it possible that you could be, have a feeling of 
deadness inside even though everyone else seems alive? The answer is yes. You can't appropriate the life of others. Is it possible that God's presence could be there in power? You could know the law. Could you know the right thing to do but not be able to do it? Yes. Like, this, is, this is the lesson of Israel. And it moves Paul not to some kind of pride that says, oh, I know, those people should have known better. Why aren't they more like me? But I think he feels in the depth of his heart the reality that all of these things could be true, but rote religiosity will not get you the life that God desires for you. It is possible to trust the machinery, but not trust the Messiah. That's a little play on M. See what I'm saying? And I think for those of us who are the most religious, those of us who have benefits like this, that we need to be careful that we don't assume too much. You can assume that because you have more or less done the right thing your whole life, or you can assume because your parents are so faithful, or because you were a part of the, the right family, or you were born into the right neighborhood of the right city, or the right part of the country, or the part of the world, or you have a particular bent toward do-gooding or something, that everything will be fine. And the reality here is that you could have all these benefits. You could be in pole position. But if you have not engaged faith, if you have not engaged the heart, if you have not had your eyes opened to God's reality, then you can be lost. You see, this warning for Israel had been there all the way. It's one of the reasons that he sent prophets. Look at what God had said to, uh, to Israel through Isaiah in chapter 1. God himself is telling them, he's warning them, he's saying, look, stop the machinations, I want your heart. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Now, what an insult. You bring an offering to God, he's like, vain. That's a bad grade. Bring no more vain offerings, he says. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. What Paul through the prophet, or what God was saying through the prophet Isaiah is this, that Israel had all the machinations of a rote religiosity, but their hearts were far from him. They had inherited a form of religion, but lost entirely its point. They were not engaged in doing good or in seeking justice or in correcting oppression or bringing justice to the fatherless or pleading the widow's cause, and they were fine with it because they were going through the motions in enough other ways. Now, what we should not believe from this is that these kind of things, any sort of religious trappings, any kind of consistent praying, any gathering to worship, any singing, it's not that those things are inherently bad, but they can be if they keep you from the heart of actually engaging God. 
Israel is a flashing warning sign throughout all of history that you can go through the motions but miss the point. It's like when I used to drive to my 7.30 a.m. calculus class in high school. I'd drive in the interstate, it's a 20-minute drive, country, going in, freezing in the morning. I don't know if you've had this situation happen before, but there would be times where I would park my car at the end of the drive, step out into the cold, and like be wakened up and realize in a terrified moment that I had no recollection of the entire drive there. You ever had a situation like that? I autopiloted myself through snow on icy interstates at 70 miles an hour for 20 minutes, and I get to school, and I had completely gone through the motions. And Israel is a massive flashing sign that all of us have a potential to do that, not with simple things even like a commute to school, but with the biggest and most important issues of our life. How is your soul? Do I, am I believing? Am I stirring myself toward God? Israel had missed the point, though they were still going through the motions. You can't inherit a live heart. You've got to ask God for one in the present, in the here and now. So Israel's situation is that they are in a moment of rejection. They've rejected the Christ and therefore they are cut off. This is painful to Paul. More than that, they have continued to go through the motions. They had pole position, but they missed it. And so we are learning from Paul in the midst of this. Those two realities, pole position, they missed it, Right now, in a moment of rejection, the question is, what is the right response? And I'm going to use right in a couple of different ways. It's the wonder of the English language. Words can mean a couple of different things. I mean not only the proper response, the right response. I mean like the ethical one, the one that is pleasing to God, the one that should be stirred up inside of us. So not only a right response in that sense, morally, but the right response, meaning if you're the person that is in the right. Because Paul has come to a place where he is convinced he knows, he knows Christ and he knows the path to God. The question becomes, what do you do next? I don't want to step too far there. We'll get there or step on too many toes. But I think too many people believe that once you've done the job of determining who is right, that it's over. If you can just come to figure out who's more right, who's more correct, then somehow for a Christian that ends the whole thing. The reality is, is that the job is just beginning. That's the beginning of a job. So here's the question. What is the right response? Both the right ethical, moral response and for the person who is right, who is correct. Here's what's amazing about Paul. Paul has suffered greatly at the hands of of his kinsmen. When he began to follow Jesus, he was rejected. He was kicked out of temple worship. There's a series of places in the New Testament where he describes being beaten multiple, multiple times, left for dead, harshly treated, insulted, persecuted. And what he doesn't say, but is the reality behind the situations, is that it is almost entirely at the hands of his own people that the religiously zealot Israelites were the ones that were persecuting him. They had caused all, caused all this great harm. He had every right 
to say, I want them dead, I want them gone, I want them punished for what they've done. So what is it? What is it in Paul that when he thinks across and he sees his enemies, those who are persecuting him, those who are causing him suffering, and when he sees those who in, in everything in his being, they are objectively wrong? I mean, isn't that just about the worst? I told someone in a student ministry one time, I said, you really have two problems. He, he was always persecuted. He was always getting in trouble with people and they were just annoyed by him. I said, you know, you think you have one problem, you have two problems. Uh, one, you're really harsh and bombastic and you just push things the wrong way and people respond poorly. So that would be a problem in and of itself. But here's the second problem that you have. You're almost always wrong. You see, you can suffer being proud, maybe, you can just be a little bit humbled. And you can suffer through being wrong, maybe, but the combo of being a proud idiot is hard to, re- to recover from. So imagine Paul's stance. He sees out, he knows objectively they're wrong, and they're my enemies, they're causing me harm. So what's the right response? How does he position himself? What is it that moves him? Well, he says, here's the thing, my love for those kind of people runs so deep that I myself would rather be cut off and accursed for their sake. Do you feel the weight of this? Do you see how countercultural, upside-down kingdom kind of thing this is? But this is not normal. But this is a response that Paul is demonstrating for us as the right response once we've discovered that someone is wrong, even to their harm and potentially even to our harm, It is a deepening of love, not a sharpening of the knife. It does no good to tell yourself over and over and over again how wrong they are and how right you are, or to rehearse the wrongs that that wrong person has committed if it's going to leave you to a spirit of cynical vengeance-seeking, then you've missed the point. Paul's enemies are before him, they are objectively wrong, and he loves them deeply. He is ready and willing to sacrifice for those kind of people. He's putting himself on the line for proud, harmful idiots. I mean, that's what it would feel like to him. It's why what he writes in Romans chapter 12, this is his summary after three chapters of speaking about Israel. This is some of his summary. He says in verse 17 of Romans chapter 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He calls evil evil. He calls rejection rejection. He calls hardness of heart hardness of heart. But what do we do when we get in a situation like that? We overcome it with good. I remember when I was a kid and I read this verse, I used to think, well, that sounds like evil to throw a burning coal on someone's head. And I thought, okay, so he says don't actively do evil, but you do get to throw fire on someone. So that's good. It's an idiom. It's the idea that 
you would put yourself in sackcloth and ashes if you had a spirit of repentance. What he's saying is by doing good to those who are your enemies, by feeding the hungry and, and giving water or something to drink to those who are thirsty, you will move them to change. That you don't win someone and help them to see their error or to help them to stop causing the suffering of others. You don't move them by vengeance. And if you see the world through a lens of sheer power and debate, then you may be just spinning your wheels. And it is certainly not Christian. It's certainly, according to Paul, this is certainly not the right response. So, as we look at Romans 9, at a small scale, there may be doctrinal disputes. There may be opportunities for you to figure out, what do I do if a Christian that I love dearly, or a friend, or someone in my family, or my spouse, as we talk about these things, what if they're wrong? I don't want to talk about doctrine because when I talk about doctrine, sometimes it's just going to, it's just going to rip us apart. Well, that's not what happens with, with Paul. He talks through things. If you can't come to the same definition of election or predestination, what is it going to cause you to do? If you've discovered that someone is wrong and you're in the right, well, then the job has just begun. The question that I often ask in any number of issues, if it's about pandemics or if it's about politics or if it's about sporting events or if it's about theology or about doctrine or about practice or about money, people give a ton of energy to determine themselves to be right and the other person to be wrong. And so many times I want to ask the follow-up question, uh, okay, so what now? I believe that that is the most important work. It's the most important question. And it is often left completely undone, as though the entire job of the world was simply to parse people out into different levels of rightness and wrongness. And meanwhile, the message of the gospel is crying out and saying that we all in some ways are wrong, and even if you get to the point where you're objectively right, the job has just begun. That's when love takes over. That's when drawing near takes over. That's when giving and sacrificing of yourself takes over. I'm just going to use politically charged nowadays terms. Here's what Paul says. Israel's wrong, they had pole position, they're proud and they're causing suffering and all this kind of stuff and someone comes in and says, yeah, cancel them. And then Paul says, oh my goodness, no way. Cancel me. I mean, is this too cheesy? Are we, I don't know if we're off the rails right now or what, I don't know where we are, but do you see the point? Paul full on, he just says, I would rather be completely forfeiting my position for my enemy. And if you think to yourselves, well, this is counterintuitive, then you're probably starting to get the point. And I also think that we're onto something because it turns out that Jesus lived exactly the same way. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. This parable. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost 
One of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Paul's commitment, like Jesus, was to sacrifice, to sacrifice for those who were wayward, to seek the lost, to be a blessing to the blind, to draw near to those who are far off. And our instinct and our heart must be the same. Now you might say to me, this is very difficult for me and I don't know how it's going to happen. You don't know my hurts, you don't know how difficult this is. And I would say that there is one who does know how difficult this is. In a moment, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. We are going to be invited, every single one of us, to place trust in Christ, not as a, a reward for a good week of righteousness, but to come down a center aisle and to partake in a down payment of a meal, welcomed into a family. And the reality of this situation is that all of us had been enemies of God. This is exactly how we have been treated. We were the blind, we were the wayward, we were the wrong one, and yet God drew near. Jesus, at the very evening that he institutes this meal, hands a cup and shares a meal with the one who would betray him. And Paul says, I have been given this kind of love, therefore I can give it to others, even those who are persecuting me. My firm belief is that when we start to respond like this, and when we start to realize that coming to the table, wait, I've been given mercy, and when we start to see others as recipients of mercy and love and affection, even in their worst moments, then we will have started to live like Christ, and I believe that will make an impact in the world in a way that nothing else can. I want to invite Bill and Larry to come forward. They're going to help to administer the, the elements of communion, a couple of your elders. Let me invite you to see this as a meal, as a welcome from God, welcoming those who do not deserve it. The way that we take the Lord's Supper here at Forks Midtown is you're going to exit through the middle aisle, you're going to come forward and grab the elements and just hold on to them. We want to, in a show of unity and, and of communion together, we want to take the elements uh, together once they've been received. And I would say to you this morning, if you know and realize that you are a recipient of mercy, if you're placing your trust in Jesus and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then this is set before you as an invitation. And I would invite you to see this as an act of faith, that you are abandoning your own righteousness and your own ability and throwing yourself on the one who gave himself for you. So if that is your hope this morning, then please do come.